Peace be upon you. So God willing, today we have a very exciting episode. We are going to talk about supernovas. We are going to talk about black holes. And we are going to talk about the brightest object in the universe, all using verses from the Quran. But before we get into that, we are going to look at the history of the children of Israel. God blessed these people more than he's blessed any other people. He's presented to them more prophets and messengers, more scriptures, and more miracles than other people. Yet, despite this, they continuously transgressed, they fell into idol worship, they turned away from God's message, and ultimately many of them became disbelievers. We saw that God parted the sea for them and allowed them to pass on dry land. And this tyrant who was causing so much pain and grief for them was utterly drowned and annihilated right before their eyes. That despite this, immediately after, what do they do? In 251 it says, Yet when we summoned Moses for forty nights, you worshipped the calf in his absence and turned wicked. And despite this, God says in the following verse, Still we pardon you thereafter, that you may be appreciative. That despite the fact of them falling into the worst conceivable sin, that of idol worship, God forgave them. Then what happened? Then they demanded from Pharaoh that they said, we will not believe unless we see God physically. And it says, consequently, the lightning struck you as you looked. These same eyes that witnessed all those miracles, that witnessed God's annihilation of their enemy, was used to see the demise of themselves. And you would think that at this point they would wake up, they would realize how the level of hubris they were showing, the level of unappreciation they were showing. And God still... In 256, we then revived you after you had died that you may be appreciative. Unlike Pharaoh who did not get another chance, the children of Israel got numerous chances. And then what happened? God sent provisions to them of manna and quails to provide for them nutrients for their journey. And then when they were asked to enter Jerusalem, what did they do? They refused. In 258, it says, recall that we said, enter this town where you will find as many provisions as you like. Just enter the gate humbly and treat the people nicely. We will then forgive your sins and increase the reward for the pious. But did these people enter? They refused. They said, we will never enter. Not until these people who are there leave. And it says, Moses, you and your Lord go and fight. And they didn't realize, they didn't trust in God. That despite everything they saw, despite all the times that God saved them, provided for them, it wasn't enough. They didn't have belief. And in 2.60, it says, Recall that Moses sought water for his people. We said, Strike the rock with your staff, whereupon twelve springs gushed out therefrom. The members of each tribe knew their own water. Eat and drink from God's provisions, and do not roam the earth corruptingly. These people, whatever they wanted, God provided for them in the exact proportions, the exact nutrients they needed. All they needed to do was to trust in God. And we see in 261, it says, Recall that you said, O Moses, we can no longer tolerate one kind of food. Call upon your Lord to produce for us such earthly crops as beans, cucumbers, garlic, lentils, and onions. He said, Do you wish to substitute that which is inferior for that which is good? Go down to Egypt where you can find what you ask for. They have incurred condemnation, humiliation, and disgrace and brought upon themselves wrath from God. This is because they rejected God's revelations and killed the prophets unjustly. This is because they disobeyed and transgressed. This sense of unappreciation, 
that they're demanding from God to see Him physically. They're demanding from God to do other than what God commands of them. To demand for these provisions, despite what God chose to provide for them, makes them think that they know better than God. And this is the epitome of sin. When God commands us to do something, when God provides us with something, and we say, this is not enough. We want something else. We want to do something differently than what God commands us. Then we're committing sin. And what's fascinating is the language that Moses used to the children of Israel. He says, go down to Egypt. In Arabic, it's Ihibitu. This is the same language that's used from God to Satan when he refused to prostrate before Adam. And it's the same language he used towards Adam when he slipped, when the devil caused him to slip and he approached that tree. God tells them the same word, go down as enemies of one another. On earth shall be your habitation and provision for a while. When we commit sin, we are demoted, we are debased, we are sent to a lower ground in order for us to build the, the necessary appreciation, the necessary know-how to build ourselves back up. There's something foundationally wrong with us when we knowingly sin and commit transgression. And by going down, we have to go and work on those foundational pieces. The most basic of them is the fact of being appreciative, the fact of following God's commandments. When God tells us to do something for our own good that we follow through, we don't object to those commandments. And the children of Israel repeatedly miss this point. We see in the next example of that of the heifer. God commanded the children of Israel to sacrifice a heifer. And did they just carry out, carry out with this command? No, they said, are you mocking us? What's the point of this? What color? We don't know. They continuously made excuses. And this showed their lack of trust in God. And then it follows with the following example in 274. It says, despite this, despite seeing what the purpose of the heifer was, despite seeing all these miracles, it reads, your hearts harden like rocks or even harder, for there are rocks from which rivers gush out. Others crack and release gentle streams, and other rocks cringe out of reverence for God. God is never unaware of anything you do. God is giving us this example of the various hearts of the people. God exerts pressure on these hearts, just like someone exerts pressure on a rock to get water out of it. God does this to our hearts to make our hearts open up to faith, to open up to His message. But the more we sin, the more we transgress, the harder our hearts become. Because some rocks, what happens is you give it a slight tap and water will come out of it. Look at the example of Moses. When his people asked him for water, he struck the rock with his staff and 12 springs gushed out. And then there's other rocks that will seep through the cracks. Water will seep through the cracks. And when it freezes, it will crack that rock open and a gentle stream will come out. But some people's rocks, no matter how much pressure, no matter how much impact God puts on it, all that happens is rather than opening up, softening up to God's message, it hardens. God gives us the example of a heart softening in 20, 39, 23, it says, God has revealed here in the best hadith, a book that is consistent and points out both ways to heaven and hell. The skins of those who reverence their Lord tremble therefrom. Then their skins and their hearts soften up for God's message. Such is God's guidance. He bestows it upon whomever he wills to be guided. As for those sent astray by God, nothing can guide them. 
This is a blessing from God that he allows hardship and adversity to come upon us for us to have our hearts opened up to God's message. Now, the contrast to that is these individuals that when they go through hardship and adversity rather than their hearts drawing them closer to God, they become more hardened. And this word hardened is ghasat. And we see this word in 643. It says, if only they implored when our tests afflicted them. Instead, their hearts were hardened and the devil adorned their works in their eyes. In 2253, it says, we thus set up the devil's scheme as a test for those who harbor doubts in their hearts and those whose hearts are hardened. The wicked must remain with the opposition. Those who are actively moving away from God, all that's happening is their hearts are becoming hardened, harder than stone, harder than rocks. And this root of chasat, which is hardened, it means unyielding, not giving way to pressure, hard or solid, unlikely to be swayed. That no matter what God does to try to lead these people to the light, their arrogance is sending them in the opposite direction. And this is their own choice. God wants them to be guided. But if someone chooses to be with the misguided, God allows them to follow in that direction. Now what's fascinating is when it says, and other rocks cringe out of reverence for God, this same word that's used for go down, it's yahabitu, is used for the cringe. That these rocks, they go down, they plummet, the, the density of them falls through the cracks. And this is what the hearts of the disbelievers happen. Now what happens in the physical world where you take tremendous amount of force onto a physical rock and it refuses to crack? We see this occur in the heavenly bodies. You take something like a star. A star is predominantly made of hydrogen and helium. And there's this perfect balance between the gravitational pull for the star to implode upon itself and the energy that's released when these elements are fused together. And as the star grows in mass, the fusion process increases. At the beginning, you have hydrogen and helium, and helium is built up. And as the star's mass increases, the next element that's formed that's fused together is that of carbon. And after carbon, you have oxygen, and after oxygen, you have neon, and then you have silicon, until finally, the core of that star forms iron. And something amazing happens that in a second, from when iron is fused in the center of that star, a supernova takes place and that star explodes. It is one of the most violent acts in the entire universe. And you have these heavier elements built during the supernova explosion. Now, God talks about iron in the Quran. Surah 57 is entitled Al-Hadid, which means the iron. And in verse 16 of Surah 57, we read the following. It says, Is it not time for those who believe to open up their hearts for God's message and the truth that is revealed herein? They should not be like the followers of previous scriptures, whose hearts became hardened with time, and consequently, many of them turned wicked. Iron is what causes a supernova to take place. When the fusion process for iron happens, there isn't enough energy to offset the gravity and a supernova takes place. Surah 57 is entitled Al-Hadid, the iron. Iron has an atomic number on the periodic table of 26. In Arabic, each letter corresponds to a numerical value. This is known as the geometrical value of each letter. And the geometrical value of Hadid, which means iron, which is the title of Surah 57, is also 26. 
Ha has a geometrical value of 8, Dal has a geometrical value of 4, Ya 10, and Dal 4. You add those numbers together, you get 26. The same number is the atomic number of iron. Now what else is interesting is the surah titles Al-Hadid, which translates to the iron. Al has a geometrical value of 31. 31 plus 26 is 57, which is the surah number for Al-Hadid, the iron. Now, what else is interesting is if we know that the core of our Earth, the core of a sun that causes a supernova, is that of iron. It's fascinating that since the Quran contains 114 surahs, that if you divide that in half, you get 57, as if the core of the, the Quran itself is made of iron. Now, if you cut it another way, rather than looking at the halfway point in surahs, because not every surah has the same length, if you looked at exactly where is the halfway point in length of the Quran, you get Surah 19, which is the foundational piece for the mathematical miracle of the Quran. So God is signifying in Surah 57, verse 25, says, We sent our messengers supported by clear proofs, and we sent down to them the scripture and the law that the people may uphold justice. And we sent down the iron wherein there is strength. God in the Quran is identifying this element above others in the sense of strength. Now we know that it's physically strong, but to, to realize that this is what causes a supernova, a star to explode. Now what's left after the star emanates all these elements throughout the cosmos that seed all these planets in future heavenly bodies? If the core of the star after the supernova is about 1.4 times the mass of our sun, you get what's known as a neutron star. A neutron star is a star that collapsed where the electrons get fused in with the protons creating neutrons. And you have something that is 1.4 times the mass of the sun packed into a space about the size of New York City. This is astronomically dense. Now what happens if the core that is left behind is greater than three times the mass of the sun? Something else even more phenomenal takes place. And that's the creation of a black hole, a puncture in space-time. The center of every galaxy possesses one of these black holes. The gravitational pull of a black hole is so immense that if anything passes its event horizon, it will not be able to escape. That's the only reason that we are not sucked into the black hole right now, is that as long as our distance within its event horizon, where all of a sudden there is no turning back, is great enough, then we would just treat that as a heavenly body no different than our sun as far as the gravitational orbits go. Now I got another question for you. What is Altaric? Surah 86 is entitled Altaric, which is translated as the bright star. And it reads, in the name of God, most gracious, most merciful, by the sky in Altaric. Do you know what Altaric is? The bright star. Absolutely everyone is well guarded. This word, Altaric, it comes from the root Tarag, which means a path away, but it also means rocks hitting against each other. Because the root of the word comes from back in the times when people were Bedouins, and they wanted to knock, to enter, to let someone know that they're there. There wasn't a hard surface for them to knock on. So what they would do is grab two rocks and clank them together. And by doing so, they would allow the person to know they're outside. So we can extrapolate that Altaric consists of rocks smashing together each other. And then God tells us in 86.3, it says, it is the bright, and in Arabic it reads, al-najmu lathagibu. 
and Al-Najmu means the star, but what does Al-Thagibu mean? Al-Thagibu can be understood as something bright, but it's also, if you look at the root of Thaqaf Ba, it means a hole, and specifically it's a hole shining through darkness, or a bright light piercing through a hole. Now what is a black hole? A black hole is a star that collapsed in on itself and punctured through the fabric of space-time. I believe Altaric is in reference to not just a black hole, but a very specific kind of black hole. There's something that's known as a quasar. A quasar is the brightest object in the universe. And what a quasar is, is a black hole that's in the center of a galaxy. When it comes in contact with another galaxy, and the black holes start feeding off all the stars and the planets of that other galaxy, this causes the brightest event in the entire universe known as a quasar. As the black hole starts consuming planets and stars in mass, it creates light radiation that traverses thousands of light years across. To put this in perspective, a single quasar emanates more light than an entire galaxy can over the span of its entire life of billions of years. And these happen in moments that we are able to witness here on this planet. Now, if God forbid, these quasars, the gamma rays that they emit upon their consumption of these heavenly bodies, if they were to happen to be pointed directly at planet Earth, it could wipe out our entire ozone layer and wipe life right off this earth. That's why I believe in verse 6 of Surah 86, it reads, absolutely everyone is well guarded. You know, we spent so many years completely oblivious to these threats that are bombarding our planet, but God is protecting us. We see the same word, athagibu, used in Surah 37 verse 10 in the reference to the jinns. It says, if any of them ventures to charge the outer limits, they get struck with a fierce projectile. I imagine this as if God is pointing these cannons, these quasars, at these jinn entities who are trying to penetrate the outer limits and completely obliterating them. Now the physics that takes place as an entity approaches and ultimately enters a black hole draws a lot of parallelism with how God describes the Day of Judgment and how it's going to be for the individuals on that day. As an object approaches the event horizon, the outside observer seeing that object, will it will appear as if they were suspended in that position, never crossing over that threshold for all of eternity. But for that individual who does go on that journey, they will not only enter into the black hole, what happens to them? Now, obviously, no physical body could survive, but we are not physical bodies, we're souls. And if a soul was to enter inside that black hole, a couple things happen. One is rather than being on space-time, it gets flipped. And now you're in a time-space paradigm where you could traverse through your entire history as if it's space, looking into your past, into your present, and into your future. This whole concept of time going in one direction becomes flipped upside down. Then in addition, it's as if this person is falling indefinitely for all of eternity because they are going beyond the fabric of space-time and they're going to be in perpetual drop. Now imagine an individual 
who is in a perpetual freefall that for the rest of their eternity, they have to witness every single thing that they failed in this life, everything they did that was a wasted opportunity to draw closer to God. These are the individuals who on the day of judgment are going to regret all their decisions in this world, that why didn't they use these chances more wisely? Shame is going to cover their face. And you think, what happens when someone's bad deeds are exposed? The shame they feel. They want to hide from the people. They want to flee from others so no one sees them. And we see this in the example of Adam. In 722, it reads, He thus duped uh, them with lies. As soon as they tasted the tree, their bodies became visible to them, and they tried to cover themselves with the leaves of paradise. Their Lord called upon them, Did I not enjoin you from that tree and warn you that the devil is your most ardent enemy? Adam and Eve, they were feeling shame for what they did. They were trying to hide themselves from God. And it's no different that in the day of judgment, when people's deeds are brought forth and everyone can see how we spent our life. Did we spend this life wisely, doing righteous deeds, worshiping God alone, drawing closer to God, or did we waste this life chasing vanities, being unappreciative, that for all of eternity, they will have to fess up to this and there is no turning back at that point. They've crossed that event horizon. Once you're in, you are never getting out. In Surah 69, verse 19 through 28, we read, As for the one who receives his record with his right hand, he will say, Come read my record. I did believe that I was going to be held accountable. He has deserved a happy life in an exalted paradise. Its fruits are within reach. Eat and drink happily and return for your works in days past. As for him who has given his record in his left hand, he will say, Oh, I wish I never received my record. I wish I never knew my account. I wish my death was eternal. My money cannot help me. All my power is gone. Let's not make the same mistake. God allowed us to come down to this world to redeem ourselves. But if we make the same mistakes in this world, then we are going to be suspended in eternity, living with this regret. In Surah 2, verse 37 through 39, we read, Then Adam received from his Lord words, whereby he redeemed him. He is the Redeemer most merciful. We said, go down, Ihibatu, therefrom all of you. When guidance comes to you from me, those who follow my guidance will have no fear, nor will they grieve. As for those who disbelieved and reject our revelations, they will be the dwellers of hell, wherein they abide forever. God tells us that on the day of judgment, the eighth universe is going to be created and that is of hell. These individuals who do not grow and develop their souls, who are not redeemed back into God's kingdom, who are not elevated to the paradise where Adam and Eve once lived, are going to fall into this eighth universe that's physically further away from God, and they will be residing there forever, living with the guilt and shame for wasting this last opportunity. Now, before we close, I want to circle back to the original analogy that took us down this path. In Surah 274, again it read, Despite this, your hearts harden like rocks or even harder, for there are rocks from which rivers gush out, others crack and release gentle streams, and other rocks cringe, Uthagabu, out of reverence for God. God is never unaware of anything you do. Now, the natural inclination I have when I read this verse 
is to think about these rivers and streams in the sense of water. But what if we understand this in the sense of light? That there are certain rocks from which God puts a little bit of pressure on these individuals' hearts, and out of it comes light gushing out. In other people's hearts that are hardened, God puts a little bit of pressure and a gentle stream of light comes out. But then there are some rocks that God puts pressure on, and rather than emanating light, what happens is that they transform into a black hole. In Surah 57 from 12 through 15, and again, this is uh, the same Surah Al-Hadid, Iron, it reads, The day will come when you see the believing men and women with their lights radiating ahead of them and to their right. Good news is yours that on that day you will have gardens with flowing streams. You will abide therein forever. This is the greatest triumph. On that day, the hypocrite men and women will say to those who believe, Please allow us to absorb some of your light. It will be said, go back behind you and seek light. A barrier will be set up between them, whose gate separates mercy on the inner side from retribution on the outer side. They will call upon them, were we not with you? They will answer, yes, but you cheated your souls, hesitated, doubted, and became misled by wishful thinking until God's judgment came. You were diverted from God by illusions. Therefore, today... No ransom can be taken from you, nor from those who disbelieve. Your abode is the fire, it is your Lord and miserable abode. The way I understand these verses is that in the hereafter, the hearts of the believers are going to be emanating, radiating light. But the disbelievers are going to be absent of light. Their hearts are going to be that of like black holes, begging to absorb the light from the believers. And while the believer's heart shine and radiate the glory of God, the disbeliever's heart do nothing but attempt to suck the light out of all of God's blessings. Therefore, for all of eternity, they're going to be in darkness and in absence, wishing that they made the right decisions in this world when they had the chance. God willing, we're going to end there. If you guys got comments or questions, please hit us up at crontalk at gmail.com. And until next time, peace and God bless.